Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Data is everywhere, but do we know what it means? A common problem for many enterprises wanting to adopt cutting-edge data-driven solutions is that they have a ton of legacy applications interlinking with more modern tech stacks. If the organization is large and complex enough, it typically becomes unrealistic for any one individual to understand how it all hangs together. All of these applications generate data points with their own definitions, meaning, and naming conventions. So how do organizations like these set themselves up for success in a data-driven world, technically and culturally? And how can we create a consistent and holistic view of our data that can be used equally by technologists, analysts, and business users? To answer these questions, I recently spoke to David P. Mariani, who is the founder and chief technology officer of AtScale. Dave is an incredibly talented technology executive and entrepreneur with more than $800 million worth of company exits on his resume. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss how to create successful technology companies from scratch, what David learned during his time at Yahoo that made him start AtScale, what a semantic layer is and what it does for your organization, what David's utopian technology stack would look like and why, David's vision for how data-driven organizations will function in the future, how universal semantic layer fits into this future, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Dave. David Mariani, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Jonas. It is my pleasure to have you on here, and we are going to have a very interesting conversation today about how to treat your data as a strategic asset and all the tech that drives data science. So I, for one, am very interested and excited to learn from you. I've looked at your resume and your experience, and there is so much to learn today. So let's get straight into that. But before we get to all the technical detail, we'd love to learn more about you, Dave. So in your own words, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background, and what you do? Yeah, sure, Jonas. So my background is for a tech person and a startup founder. It's not typical. So I grew up in a farm town in Central California and, you know, of parents who never went to college. So taught myself basic programming using on an Apple II Plus in high school and thought it was the coolest thing ever. But of course, nobody told me that there was this industry called you know, software engineering. So I chose UCLA as my college because it looked like what a college should look like to me. No other reason other than that. And I majored in, in economics because that was the closest thing to business, which is what I thought I wanted to do. 
So having no clue, you know, basically that the technology industry really existed. When I interviewed out of school, um, I ran into this funny company that was a consulting company that did consulting for risk management for banks. I love the people. It was just a handful of people, 10 people. So it was a startup in the in terms of size, but it also became a startup in terms of software. So the reason why they hired me was because I knew how to program basic and they wanted me to write DBase reports, which I had no clue what DBase was, but quickly learned it. So long story short, it was for me coming from the business side, but then knowing and learning technology and learning software and how to, how to write code and how to do it in a company. We morphed that company into a software company from a consulting firm and then sold it to Oracle for you know over $120 million in, in, during the day. And that sort of launched me off on this career of really uh, a tech startup before they were, they were called tech startups. So I learned a lot from that experience and having sort of, I call living the problem, saw a lot of our financial clients having real trouble with their reporting. And the reporting during the day was the sort of banded report writers, and there was no real analytics. It was all just report writing. And so I saw that there was a real need for more ad hoc analytics. Saw a demo of SBase, which was an amazing tool that, at the time, and started. I needed to and, and decided I needed to solve this problem. So I used my relationships with that company to help fund and start my first startup called Mindshare and raised a series A of venture capital and it was off to the races. I sold that company to a company in Northern California and that's how I got into display advertising. So into advertising, I should say. So one of the first email marketing companies called Digital Impact bought my analytics startup and we wedded my analytics platform in with their email marketing platform. And that's where sort of, for me, marketing analytics came to play. And we did really great things with marrying analytics with actually digital advertising. When digital advertising, again, was very new, I decided I wanted to scale up from just email into what was a nascent market called display advertising, which is those little banner ads that you see everywhere across the internet. And the key here was applying analytics to target those ads so you're more likely to click on those ads. And so I joined a startup where I used my analytics expertise for display advertising called Blue Lithium. And we did an amazing job for our customers such that Yahoo saw us and then Yahoo decided to buy Digital Impact. And that's how I got my entree into Yahoo. So having been a startup guy, both starting startups, working in startups, and then going to you know Yahoo, a completely different experience and having to operate in a larger company, but love the scale. So, you know, we went from, you know, three and a half million emails a day at Digital Impact to 350 uh, digital ads a day at Blue Lithium to three and a half billion ads a day at Yahoo. So each order of magnitude sort of increase in scale. And it really taught me a lot about what is what big data was before that was the term and how to use analytics to actually really drive, to, in that terms, real operational analytics, behavioral targeting analytics for a market that was still new. So that's where a lot of my experience at struggling with making analytics really consumable by the business, that's where I really learned and suffered those paper cuts, having to eventually running analytics for Yahoo. So coming in as a small you know, subsidiary, 
to being able to apply my analytics to a larger business to being able to run all analytics for Yahoo. And that's where I learned that there was a real gap in the market, which led me to try to solve that problem at a new company called Clout, where we did your Clout score on social media. So I learned a lot about taking digital advertising analytics and making it work for social media, which was very new at the time. And then that's where I decided, hey, I need to go solve this problem for every industry. And it's where I started at scale with my co-founders from Yahoo and from some other companies that I had worked with over the years. And so that's what takes us up to current. So 2013, I founded AtScale. And eight years later here, we have a really great business. What a story and what a background. We're going to get to AtScale, but I would love to dig into some of the things you mentioned throughout there. So as a young man, when you're in this startup world, you could call it, and all of a sudden, this company gets sold for so much money. 120 million you you talked about. Um, I think those years, they, they're sort of really formative years and they put subliminal ideas into your head of in terms of what can be and they set your vision to some extent. What do you think that experience did for you in terms of your further career? I'm almost suggesting that it's a kind of a sliding doors moment without recognizing it at the time. And that's a good question. So I sold my com- my first company, Mindshare, for $35 million, and then Blue Lithium was for 300 million. So there was definitely orders of magnitudes that are there on the scale in terms of selling the companies. But what I learned a lot is that you know when the companies acquire other companies, my experience has always been in each of my acquisitions where I'm the acquired per entity, the, the acquirer really doesn't know what to do with you. And they have an idea and a concept, but really when it comes down to it, it's really up to you to make the most out of it. And so I've always saw that as opportunities to really look at the bigger company and look at the business and say, what can I do to scale up my talents and my effect to take it beyond just, you know, my startup and what we could touch. Like in a case of Yahoo, all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking to Procter and Gamble and talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of budget. And so it's not just a scale of data in terms of big scale data, but also big scale money and budget. I mean, also, you know, I wasn't just dealing with my team of 20. Yahoo is dealing with a team of hundreds scattered across, you know, India, Southern California, Northern California, and beyond. So dealing with, you know, distributed teams, dealing with lots of people and bigger organizations. So what it taught me is, you know, the startup is, it's all about how do I move fast and how do I break things and fix them fast? How do I learn fast? In a company like Yahoo, what I learned is that that scale can be an inhibitor. And so really it's about building organizations that actually can deliver that agility within a larger company. So the Yahoo experience really taught me how to scale, not just on data, but scale on organization as well. And so it taught me how to organize hundreds of people in teams that could still move very fast. And that was a learning experience. And so I like to attribute that to, you know, I've always been a technology leader. In the case of my own company at scale, you know, I was the CEO and I was the CEO for the first five years of that experience. And so I think the Yahoo experience really taught me how to be a CEO and that I had to do many more things at scale, both organizationally as well as technically. So tell us a bit about that. How did it teach you to be a CEO? What was the stuff that you picked up on there that you hadn't realized beforehand? 
Well, first of all, I had no intention to ever be a CEO. And uh, I was talking to one of my very good friends who worked for Kleiner Perkins, just joined a jo- joined Kleiner Perkins and very successful in his own right, leading organizations like Twitter and the like. And, you know, I was having lunch with him and telling him about this idea. It's like, why don't we, why doesn't somebody solve this problem that I was experiencing at Yahoo? And he said, well, why don't you solve this problem? And it's like, well, because like, I don't know anybody who can, I don't know a CEO I can hire. So I go, well, why don't you CEO? And so just by sort of challenging me on that, it's like, well, how am I going to raise money? It's like, well, it's easy to raise money. I can help you raise money. Turned out he didn't help me raise money, but, but he got me going down the path of believing that it's something that I can start and that I can do it. And lo and behold, you know, it's like all of a sudden I'm being CEO. I am learning. But, you know, having worked in management teams, both small and large, really sort of helped me in two ways. Number one, it's really hard for people coming from big companies to know how to start something from scratch because you don't have all the infrastructure and support that comes along with working in a large organization. So I already knew that having to start something small, but also people who only work in small organizations also can't see where it's going to go. And so Yahoo allowed me to see where it was going to go and what I needed to do to scale to deliver our our products and services at scale. And so having that experience of seeing both sides, how to start and scale and work at something small from scratch, and also then how to scale it out to make it work for larger organizations was really a key element. And so I'm really super happy that by happenstance, I happened to get the opportunity to work in a large organization and see that for firsthand and learn firsthand. Yeah, interesting. And the, the serendipity of these conversations, sometimes you look back and you go, ah, oh, actually, that was just that coffee conversation. And that spurred me on to do something big. Or who knows, you might have done it anyway. But the, there was a, an important moment anyway. I see Jonas, like I'll have to one tidbit for the listeners is like, this is something that I've, I've has always been my mantra, which is like, I'll always have a conversation. So no matter how innocuous it seems, and maybe it seems like a waste of time, it's almost never a waste of time to have a conversation. And there's so many instances in my life where those conversations that when I went into that, that meeting for thinking it was going to be a waste of time or thinking it was going to be something else, later on, it, you know, it really opened the door. So what I always say is like, always take that meeting, make your time because you never know where it'll lead. And there was so many times in my life like that one where that was a conversation that was life-changing, where it was just a lunch with a smart guy where we were just having fun. Yeah, personally, I can subscribe to that. I think the last five years I've gained a much stronger respect or perhaps the word is appreciation for serendipity, which is what you're trying to foster. The random occurrence, which is not completely random, but things happen when you put yourself out there. So it's really important to do that. For me, this podcast has created some amazing serendipitous opportunities, for example, because you meet interesting people like yourself. So Dave, you've described now your career here, which is really, really interesting to follow in a a 20 minute look back, which is obviously taking 25 years for you to get to this point or or maybe even longer than that. But you, you describe yourself as starting out as a business guy that then becomes the technology guy and then later becomes the analytics guy as well. What made you go into the area of analytics and data science? Yeah, so I could say that, you know, first of all, the combination of business and understanding technology has really served me really well over the years. And the reason being is that I'm kind of lucky that I went through the path because being able to understand, if you think about a a good product person, a good product person 
is understands the business problem and also understands the, the technology possibilities or limitations or how you would actually solve the problem. And so I think that combination of being able to understand the business problem and then know how you could solve it with technology is a really important combination. And for me, I don't know, data was just always, I love databases. So the relational database was very young. I think I saw Oracle at that first job I had and Oracle was version four, I think, something like that. And I was just fascinated with databases. Why databases? And I was, again, I, I learned DBase, which was a database at the time. And to me, the, the ability to store information and then retrieve information through queries was something that has excited me like nothing else. So analytics was like baked into me during my first job out of college and knowing how to store and retrieve data was part of my DNA. You know, when I was teaching myself basic on my Apple II Plus, my, my first program was a stock program and the stock program was to track my stocks because I was a, I loved to trade stocks at the time and I had no way of tracking them. And you had to have a database to be able to store those prices and store those positions to know how then to report on what their value was at any point in time. So I think I, I caught the bug very early on. Yeah. So there's a natural tendency or a natural attraction to it there. So Dave, another thing I've noticed looking at your CV is that it it seems that you've been able to ride the wave of some really important tech trends that were quite groundbreaking at the time, and uh, including at scale now that you've started. And could you talk us through those different roles and what each of them gave you in terms of why that was the right thing to do at the time, the right bet to make, I suppose? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about sort of the trends, right? So it was really, from my path, it was relational databases. So Data warehousing, I was very early on in data warehousing. I wasn't in the, in the well, I actually was in the mainframe. So our original sort of sources for our financial customers were all mainframe and COBOL. But, you know, I was more on the modern side there where I was moving that into relational databases like Oracle and Sybase and SQL Server. So I don't know that I have any kind of special skill there other than seeing transformational technologies. And, and to me, it's like I say... For you to actually have an idea about what's next, you have to sort of suffer the pain of what's now. You know, coming from COBOL and the mainframes, it was very clear that nobody could get access to that data. And a relational database with a query language that could work on a PC was definitely a big move forward, a big step forward. It was going to allow a lot more people to be able to ask questions. And so that was very clear to me. And that was a clear place that I wanted to be and put my time was in data warehousing relational and relational databases. Once I got to and tried to scale those up, OLAP technology was, was really fascinating to me. So seeing what SBase was doing with being able to do measures and dimensions and drill downs and how fast it was and how business friendly it was. So that next step of then going from rows and columns were with a very complicated SQL language where you had to be a programmer to access it. And then seeing people using Excel to be able to do and, and be very and ask very sophisticated questions of data was another sort of monumental uh, improvement in technology. But then I saw that moving to Yahoo, that technology just didn't scale and it stopped scaling. And so I started seeing people sort of migrate back into the old ways of using SQL and only SQL as their interface to query data. And to me, having been seeing the progress of what OLAP did, and how it, it basically democratized data access. Having to move back to SQL because OLAP stopped scaling 
that was terrible to me. And then that was like, I, this cannot stand. So at Yahoo, we invented Hadoop because the relational database stopped scaling. And so that's how we solved that problem. And that was clear to me that distributed computing was the best way to go rather than trying to build the biggest com single computers to run your workloads on. That made no sense to me. So that sort of scale out technology was clearly the right way to solving that problem. But I wanted to bring OLAP back, meaning, you know, allow analytics to be accessed by anyone, not just a developer, not just somebody who can understand the SQL language, but make it work at scale. So it was really sort of suffering that problem and seeing the trend of what it could have been and what it used to be, something that was good that we stopped doing. So how do I take the good that we stopped doing and bring it back and, and make it work on modern technology at scale. As I was writing the business plan for at scale, I kept on saying at scale, making analytics work at at scale. And that's where the name came from. It's like, why not just call it at scale? But it, in short, that's a long explanation, Jonas, and answer to your question. But I always say you have to walk in the shoes of the customer. And for my case, I was the customer. I wanted to buy a technology that didn't exist. So we went out and built it. And, and so to me, it's like, you know, somebody starting out of school who studied software engineering and decides they're going to do a, do a startup. I always say, good luck. You're going to need a lot, but go work for somebody else. Go work for somebody else who has a big, who's solving an interesting problem and see what problems that they're trying to solve where they're having, they're struggling. Because I guarantee you there's an idea there for a new company or a new technology. If you're working for a cutting edge company, that is trying to do cutting edge things, they're going to have problems and they're going to be exposing gaps where there's a potential market fit for somebody to start and, and solve that problem. Brilliant insights. So Dave, let's now talk about the present day and your company at scale, because I'm sure listeners are dying to hear what is at scale, what do you do and what problems do you solve for your customers? Yeah. So I'll tell you the reason why I started at scale and that's the best way to describing the problems we solve for our customer. So when I was at Yahoo and running analytics, it was a complex environment. So we had big data before it was called big data. And so scale was an issue. We invented Hadoop because Oracle couldn't scale for us. And so that solved the, the scale out problem. But it, what it didn't solve is it didn't solve the last mile analytics problem. And, to, and we were doing is we were trying to marry tools like Tableau, MicroStrategy, um, ClickView, and then we had everybody using Excel. We had custom applications for publishers and advertisers. There was a lot of people with, you know, with their mouths open waiting to be fed data. And it was my job to feed them. And what I found is that I had to, you know, with hundreds of data engineers, basically take our big data and make it small and make it small for each of these different analytical applications, these different analytical tools. And what I wanted was to be able to create data as a service once and allow anybody to use MicroStrategy if that's the tool they want to use, or Excel, or Tableau, or ClickView, or an application, build applications with my data. And I didn't want to have to actually create different pipelines for each of these tools. And what I call that is like, is a semantic layer. And that's what at scale, that's what we ended up building is an independent universal semantic layer. And what that means is that rather than embedding business logic, into the actual tools themselves, like a Tableau or a MicroStrategy or a, a Looker or a Power BI, is extract that business logic and have it live by itself. 
and have it live independent of the data it's talking to, as well as the tools that want to talk to it and talk to the data. So by having that semantic layer, I can get that business-friendly interface available to everybody, and they can use the tool that they want to use to consume that data. So if they're comfortable using Excel because they're in finance, let them use Excel. If they want to use Tableau because they're in marketing, use Tableau. But at the end of the day, that Tableau user and that Excel user, they're looking at that data and they're saying, how many clicks did I have on Yahoo Sports yesterday? That number is going to be the same regardless of what tool they used. And by the way, they're not going to have to worry about writing SQL to get that answer or knowing where the data is or what the tables are or know how to write map reduce code, for God's sakes. They can basically say, show me page views by web property for yesterday. And that is what a semantic layer does, is it provides that, that business-friendly interface to allow people to use the tools they know and love to access data at any scale. And so we built that for our customers, like our retail customers, like, like Home Depot and Wayfair, our financial services customers like Visa and Wells Fargo and Fidelity. So our CPG companies, our manufacturers like Toyota, General Mills, um, Tyson Foods. So big enterprises who have big complex environments who want to drive self-service and make data available to anyone in the organization so that everybody can make a data-driven decision, not just people who are fluent in data and SQL. And I think whether you're a data professional or a, may I call it a regular business person, I think you will be able to subscribe to the challenge that most organizations have with two very fundamental things, which is access to information easily so that you can basically ask better questions quicker of your data. And secondly, just the accuracy and consistency of that same information. So everyone who's listening to this can probably come up with a big handful of examples where they're spending a lot of time in their day going, or oh, is this the gross margin or is that the gross margin? Or did we sell five or 10 units of this last month? Because we can't agree because there's more than one version of the same. So this is a really important fundamental problem to solve for many organizations still in 2022. Yeah. And I like what you said about information. Data doesn't become information until it has metadata associated with it that makes it information. And so I like to think of today, we sort of, we've regressed with our new big data tools back to providing people access to data versus access to information. And so our passion is it really is to make turn data into information so that more people can use it, not just a data scientist or an expert business intelligence engineer. Yeah. So good technology doesn't feel like technology. It feels like a great interface where you're just interacting with what you're trying to do in itself, which is where analytics is still stuck in, in code in many ways. You know, Jonas, though, it's really hard. And the reason why it's really hard, and people told me before I started the company that that's not possible. And, you know, once I started to show the product and the working prototype, you know, the answer was, I don't believe you. And the reason being is that if you, for a semantic layer to work, it needs to be universal, which means it's got to be able to, you got to be able to talk to the semantic layer and ask questions using a variety of protocols, not just SQL, but MDX and DAX and Python and REST and JDBC and ODBC. So being able to provide all those interfaces and have them work equally well is hard. And then it's also not universal 
versatile unless it can connect to any kind of data source. So it's not just on-prem data sources like Oracle, but new cloud data sources like Snowflake and BigQuery, and then data lakes like S3. So it's, it's a big problem because it's a many inputs and many outputs, and you've got to be able to cover every combination, which if you start doing the math, it explodes pretty quickly. And so our poor quality engineers who have to test all this have a huge challenge in front of them because there's an unlimited combination of inputs and outputs that they need to make work and make work at scale. Yeah. So you said that people didn't believe it until you did it. And unfortunately, it's very hard to show the tool live on a podcast, but let's try and, and visualize it for people nonetheless. So you've mentioned a bunch of clients here that are pretty big and pretty complex. And what I'm imagining sitting behind the scenes there is a sea of different applications that are from different generations, old, new different technologies interacting and data going across there. And you're coming in to solve this and put this semantic layer on top and say, now you all have the same one truth. What results uh, and benefits have these clients seen? What are some sort of, you know, some good underground examples of, uh, of what's come about from uh, implementing this in, in some of these organizations? Yeah, that's a great one. So I'll give you an example. And, and so for, you know, the, for a semantic layer to be effective, and this is a benefit and a problem. So if done right, you don't know the semantic layer exists. You don't even know you're using it. It's invisible. And that means that your users don't know they're, they're interacting with a semantic layer. They're just getting business-friendly data using Excel or, or whatever tool they want to use. Or you're a data scientist and you're in a Jupyter notebook. It's magic. So it seems like magic. Now, of course, for us, that means our, the AtScale name is not out there, right? Because the thousands of users who are taking advantage of AtScale no, have no idea it's powered by AtScale because their interface is Tableau or Excel or that Jupyter Notebook. It's not AtScale. And so let's just talk about one of those big retailers I mentioned. You think about what happened during COVID and all the challenges with inventory. And what they did with AtScale is they, first of all, had AtScale. The first application was to all their store managers. So 3,500 store managers using just an Excel spreadsheet, talking live to at scale, on, to, to, which, which talks to BigQuery in the cloud to be able to get all their sales information across their store, as well as every store in every region across all time. That was not possible before. Before they could get a slice of data that was static, that got updated once a month, and it was only their store data. So there's no way they could compare it to anybody. So, so all of a sudden they're using the same tool using Excel, but now their wealth of data is available to them that it wasn't available before. So then now during COVID, we have inventory problems. So you know, basically the retailer could try to solve those inventory problems by themselves, or they can let their suppliers help them solve that problem. So by exposing that semantic layer to their suppliers, 9,000 suppliers, using the same tools, using Excel, as well as a custom application they built around at scale, those suppliers could make sure that product were in those stores in each region whenever possible, because those suppliers, it's in their best interest to make sure their products are on those shelves. So it's in their interest to make sure that inventory arrives at those different locations. And the spread amongst those locations is very different when it comes to inventory and demand. So by having those 9,000 suppliers work for their, on their, on their behalf, that retailer had no problems with inventory shortages. And they had the right products in the right stores you know, during the worst time of COVID because it wasn't just about them trying to solve that problem. They used their partners and their business partners to help solve that problem for them. And those business partners were all the better for it. 
great example. And the visual that I have in my head is I like to compare uh, the maturity of data analytics to the maturity of IT or the same sort of history or ascent, at least. And many listeners can probably remember a time where being computer literate meant that you were able to write DOS commands because that was how you interfaced with a computer. And all of a sudden there was Windows 95 and beyond. And it was very easy. It was dragging and dropping files and it was sort of a logical interface. And in many ways, the data analytics space is still in a DOS command world. And you're sort of trying to build that Windows 95 interface into data. And you can hear just what it opens up for frontline staff and they can interact with that information without having to become pseudo analysts in beforehand, have to, having to become pseudo analysts before actually being able to interact with that data. Very, very powerful. And so many organizations talk about how do we create data literacy and so on in the organization. Well, part of it is making that data available so that people can play with it and learn from, from just interacting with it and getting better at it. Uh, that's how we all learn with most things, but a lot of the challenges now are focused around this basic accessibility, I suppose. And you're really making me reflect on that in a different way here through this conversation. Yeah, you know, Joe, I call it data for everyone. That's our goal is data for everyone. And when I say everyone, it's like, it's everyone. It's just like, it's the people who just need to do their job. And when you think about, people forget about Excel. It's like everybody uses a spreadsheet because it's a model that they can understand. And for years, we've sort of looked and we looked down on the spreadsheet. What we did is we said, don't use the spreadsheet as a database. It's not for that. But allow you to create cells that can point to your data in your data warehouse in a natural way. And so you can you know, integrate your own cells of data from your warehouse with your own calculations or your own models. And that is super powerful because at the end of the day, whether they're using Tableau or Power BI, they all always end up exporting it to Excel to do that last bit of massaging. And why do that? Why not just allow them to use the tool that they're naturally comfortable with? So that is what I mean by data for everyone. You've got to take the data to everyone and their tools that they're used to using rather than expect them to learn new skills to use data. Yeah, I'll give you a very simple low-level example of that for my career. So I've worked in this space of analytics, data science and data for many years and had different roles there. And at one point in my career, there was a challenge in an organization where we had too many reports, right? So where do you go to find the information? We had 35 reports just describing one product. And I said, folks, we need to clean this up. This is messy. Let's create one where all this information sits in and you can go and just get it from there. And I think she was the head of the sales department or something at the time. Turns around to me and says, yeah, but you know what? I just want that email every morning with that one table in it that says how many sales I had yesterday. Because if I don't get that, I'll forget to go into your tool and look at it. And all of a sudden, I haven't looked at it for a week. That's right. And that made me really think about my technical solution was not, whereas it was great and probably right to streamline and clean up all that, was not actually that fit for that user that had a very simple need in one way, but the, their complexity lies in, in, in another space. Um, and they just wanted that number every day so they could track every day where they were at, and then go and explore further. So again, low-level solution, they get a PNG file in an image file or a JPEG or whatever it was in an email every morning saying your sales number yesterday was X, and that satisfies that need until there's a problem. Yes. And that is uh, what we sometimes uh, have to think about, pull ourselves out of the complexity and solve in simple ways. The way you talk about the marrying up of, call it principles versus 
pragmatism. There's a principle of how things should be and how we we think the world should work. And then there's the pragmatic view of, well, how do people actually want it, right? So people do want it in, in Excel. So let's not poo-poo Excel. You know, I love keep it simple, stupid, right? That's a lot of it. The other part of it is like, they always say, don't go into a relationship expecting to change the other person. I always say, don't expect to change habits. If your whole plan is that you're going to change habits of your users, good luck with that. So don't fight them. Find a way to go to them and talk to them in their language rather than trying to change habits. Brilliant. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Now, Dave, we've talked about these large organizations and the often very complex setup that they have and various systems creating and collecting data, data entering at different points in a product journey, a client journey, whatever it is we try and describe. So these organizations have this very complex environment. How do they set themselves up for success in a data world, both technically and culturally? So could you give some examples of how some of your customers have been able to pull this off and really become data-driven? Yeah, you know, my favorite customer, which is a re- another retailer, different retailer, and the other example is they treat data as a product. And so what does that mean? So going to unpack that. What it means is that just like they sell products to their customers, which are very important, obviously, they treat data the same. And which means that they have product managers for data and they have, you know, engineers that engineer data and the product managers get requirements and they create data as a product, which means... By creating data as a product, it does a couple things, right? It turns data into a software discipline, which has all the benefits of software discipline when it comes to CICD and the like, repeatability, quality, and the like. But what it also does, it creates data as a service, as a product that can be consumed by everyone. And by treating data as a product, it makes it a first-class citizen on the level of your rest of your products and services that you're in business to sell. And by making data at that same level, it's not a cost center anymore. Now it's a core part of the business. And so by doing that, I've seen that that retail company has just many, many more people making data-driven decisions because of that philosophy and by investing in data at that level. And so I always talk about data as a product and that philosophy as being a real core goal that I think any chief data officer or CIO should have is it by elevating and thinking data as a product, you're going to spend a lot more time on making it right and also satisfying your customers, both internal and external. So it's not just your internal users. You got to be thinking about your part, your business partners, because you want to be able to extend your realm to be able to have them be able to help you make your business better. And so you got to really think of it holistically, not just for yourself. Very good insights. And you can see how that, well, I was going to call it simple. It's actually not simple at all. That notion of just changing your view on data and treating it as a product. Another word for that, I think, is strategic assets. Yes. Really then shifts the whole organization into gear as to how you use data and how you respect it and how you implement it into various processes and the rest will follow. It's almost the uh, assumption then. Yeah, well, well said. So Dave, let's talk a little bit about technology here. So 
we've got these organizations that have their legacy tech and uh, new tech uh, mixed up. But I'm interested from your point of view, because you are very well versed in this space. If you were to design a modern tech stack for an organization wanting to leverage advanced data science, and you could put in there whatever you wanted, it's a clean slate, what would it look like and why? Ooh, I love this question. So if I had what we have today and I was at Yahoo, this is what I would, I would build a stack. I got to be careful because these are all our partners. <laughs> There's really a, a semantic layer would be key. But I mean, obviously I wanted that at Yahoo and I didn't, I couldn't find it. So I had to go start a company and build one. And the key for the semantic layer, key principle there is to stand on the shoulders of giants. That's what I always like to say. So the semantic layer doesn't hold data. It is really a, an API layer that sits in between the tools and your data. What that means is that your stack with that semantic layer is like you can support multiple tools. So like I said earlier, I don't expect to change habits. So I need to be able to support as many inputs, as many sort of consumer types as possible, including the data scientists and the business analysts and the application developer. So I'd make sure I have a semantic layer for that. And then I would choose a cloud-based data platform to power that. I would make sure, without mentioning names, that those cloud data platforms could be used on different clouds. So I wouldn't choose cloud proprietary technologies because then you're wedded to that cloud provider. And I think that's a poor choice. So I would choose tools that could work on multiple clouds so that when I did have data on multiple clouds or decided that I wanted to change my clouds, I wouldn't have to retool my whole infrastructure. There's a whole argument going on about a data warehouse versus a data lake house. I think that's all hogwash. Of course, you have a data lake. That's where your data lands. And then you have a data warehouse, which is what makes it fast and makes and provides a great interface for analytics. So I would have both and I would allow access to both. Your data lake, people need access to your data lake. Like data scientists need granular data for training their models and doing exploration and exploratory analysis. So you need access to the data lake data, which is raw. You also need access to the clean data in the data warehouse because finance can't be dealing with raw data. And so uh, to to me, it's not an either or, it's an and. So I would have a cloud-based data platform infrastructure powered by a data lake and a data warehouse. It would run on any cloud. I would have a semantic layer and then I would have whatever tools were popular in the day and I have a, another set of tools I can't tell you because they're all partners of ours. I would not try to force my users down a single path. I would support them again, wherever they lay. And that would include Excel, by the way. And not just in Excel as a, as a database or a data dump, but live connections from Excel so that anybody with Excel on their desktop could be a consumer of my data. Brilliant. I love this marrying up of existing technologies and existing skills with the modern tech, it really also for me highlights what you're trying to do with at scale and, and what the product's trying to solve. It's trying to, to some extent, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but it's just trying to, to some extent fix this challenge that a lot of organizations have with legacy systems and, and new systems trying to interface and, and integrate data across those. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it, we took an integration first strategy, and that's always been my philosophy in even running the analytics organizations, integration first. If you think about a lot of our competitors who don't exist today, they built full stacks. So they built their own database with their own analytical engine, with their own visualization tools. And they said, hey, Mr. Customer, adopt this. 
So forget about all the other stuff you've invested in. Here's this new stack that's better. And it doesn't matter if it's better. It's different. And again, you rely on the customer changing habits. And to me, that is the wrong approach. Is that instead you should take an integration approach and you should make your technology and your technology stack as fungible as possible, as plug and play as possible, so that you can isolate your dependencies. You can firewall those dependencies because you never know what's going to happen in the future. Because I can tell you there'll be a new BI tool or a new AI auto ML platform that someone's going to want to bring into the organization because it's the best. There's going to be a new way of storing data because it's the best. And you're not going to be able to fight that. And maybe you don't even want to fight that. So you've got to have technology that will allow you to be flexible, to be able to adopt new technologies without retooling the entire stack. And so that's really the principle that I would sort of hold when I look at developing a resilient analytic stack for a modern organization. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Now, Dave, we're coming towards the end of the conversation. So I have saved that one big question for you here towards the end. What's your vision for how data-driven organizations will function in the future? And how does the universal semantic layer fit into this picture? Yeah. So I think the universal semantic layer, the semantic layer is really the unifying thread that joins what today is we have really two different silos of analytics consumers. I would say three. You have your business analysts, you have your data scientists, and then you have your application developers. And they're all in their own little world using their own tools and stacks. And they all exist under the same roof in the same organizations. So when you think about the data scientist, the data scientist needs to consume data just like the business analyst does, but they also are predicting the future. They're generating new features, new predictions that that business analyst needs and that that application developer needs because they need to operationalize it so they can order that new product or new inventory when the model says to order it. And so to me, the semantic layer is that unifying thread that brings these teams together so that the business analysts can not just look at what happened yesterday, but also be able to look at what's going to happen tomorrow because the data scientist has predicted what's going to happen tomorrow. And those data elements are consumable in that semantic layer. And that application developer can now operationalize those decisions to do prescriptive analysis to actually take action automatically, autonomously on that data. So my vision of the future is that analytics is no longer just a human-led endeavor, but we're able to bake analytics powered by humans, but into the operations of an, an enterprise, and that decisions can be made with confidence that take away some of the drudgery that we currently put on the shoulders of our business users and our users in the organization, where much more of our decisioning can be made autonomously versus finding the needle in the haystack and then figuring out what to do about it. Brilliant. And uh, you're making me reflect on the last 10 years of analytics maturity across yeah, many industries. And I think whereas 10 years ago, there were challenges in terms of speed and scale of big data, our ability to be accurate enough with predictions and so on. Uh, those things have largely been not solved, but they've been improved substantially with cloud technologies and the further advancement of ML and so on. The biggest challenge now is actually operationalizing some of this stuff and, and getting it to the front line. So we can all build uh, fantastic models, but actually getting it into a business operation that is firstly meaningful, but then accurate and timely is the biggest challenge. And that's what your semantic layer here, I can really see it for myself how it can help solve that challenge. Yep. 
Now, Dave, before we finish up, I've got a couple of questions for you. And one is one that I always ask of guests on the show, and that is to pay it forward. So who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Yeah, you know, I've been following Ben Stansel. He's the founder and chief analytics officer at Mode. And he's been writing some really interesting blog posts. He has a great blog series talking about the challenges of data and talking a lot about, you know, how to make data more approachable. So I think I'm older, so I have more history and also biases sort of baked into me. I think is more of a born in the modern age, but also thinking about the same problems of how do you deliver semantics or what he calls metric layers and metric stores. So I think he's a, an interesting person to talk to. I would love to listen to uh, a conversation that you might have with him. Brilliant. So I will definitely be reaching out to Ben. So thank you for that recommendation. And Lastly, Dave, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Well, it's very easy, at scale.com, A-T-S-C-A-L-E.com. We have great stuff when it comes to white papers. We have use cases and case studies with real customers. We have a webinar series. It's a thought leadership series that we run once a month where we don't talk about at scale, but we talk about the challenges and we have real analytics leaders talk about how they solve those challenges. There's a really great amount of information about our industry and what's happening next. And then if you go to the atscale.com resources page, you're going to find it all right there. Yeah. And in my research for this podcast, I did look at some of the stuff you have on there. There's a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of gold on there. So I do recommend listeners to have a look at the website. And as you can hear, Dave is just a, a passionate <laughs> nerd in in this area so you're just going to get <laughs> yeah. you're just going to get real value out of it it's, it's great what you're doing i think in terms of creating a, a future world for us all here that is much more data driven david marani thank you so much for being our leaders of analytics today it's been a true pleasure and a lot of value has been given to listeners and i have learned a lot personally so thank you so much and all the best for the future thanks jonas thanks for doing this and thanks for having me on <laughs>